It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension? There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Pumped hydro. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero Show, recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast on the internet at bze.org.au, 3cr.org.au and whatever podcasting app you choose to use. And don't forget, you can also follow us on Twitter at bzetechshow. G'day, my name is Anthony Daniel and joining me as always is Matt Grantham. How are you, mate? Very good, Anthony. How are you today? I'm well, thanks. And who do we have in the studio today? Today we're going to be speaking to Simon Corbell, who's the Victorian Government's Renewable Energy Advocate, and we're going to be discussing issues surrounding the regulation of microgrids and the potential for community retailing models, and he joins us in the studio today. Hello, Simon. Hi, Matt. Hi, Anthony. Thanks very much for having me. My pleasure. Simon, can we just sort of start the interview off, you know, community energy retailing initiatives are being uh, brought forward. You were recently at one run by Indigo Shire, the uh, the totally renewable yak and dander. Yep. Can you tell us a little bit about how governments go about selecting these sorts of programs and what the general strategy is at a government level for this type of uh, initiative? Yeah, sure. Thanks for the question. It was great to be up at Yak and Dander last Friday to see the launch of their mini grid project which is a solar and storage project that's been supported by the Victorian government. So the Victorian government's running a a series of grant rounds called the New Energy Jobs Fund and that's designed to provide seed capital uh, or business development funding for a range of new renewable energy projects but about 80% of the projects that have been supported from that $20 million fund have been community-based energy projects. And is there an ideal number of customers and megawatts to sort of get these kind of projects off the ground with the technology as it is at this stage? Well, the projects that the New Energy Jobs Fund has been supporting are varied, and it's really about the merits of each individual project and whether or not they're showing innovation. So what the state is really looking for the successful uh, grant recipients are projects that show innovation, projects that can be scalable, and projects that are trying to address particular problems in terms of community-owned energy, solutions to grid reliability and security, and obviously solutions that help bring down prices for consumers as well. So it is uh, a very wide-ranging group of projects that have been supported under NEDGEF, as it's known, New Energy Jobs Fund. And uh, certainly the state's looking very closely at projects that can be scaled up. So you asked about size at Yakandanda. The microgrid project there is supporting around 100 homes with uh, solar and storage at the moment. They're mini-grid, as they call it. But certainly they're keen to see that scaled up over time. And Yakandanda as a community, it's about 1,000 people who live in that township. They're looking to achieve 100% renewables outcome, and the mini-grid's certainly part of that. And, and so, Simon, you know, you mentioned there's some issues to do with grid restraint and some other things there. What sort of weighting do you place on community support? You know, how big an element of the equation is that where you've got a community that goes, we just really, really want this? And to the point where, you know, there might be some communities where it looks like the numbers add up from a grid reliability point, but you've got one community that really wants it. They are more likely to succeed with it, aren't they? 
Look, there's no doubt about it, Matt. You've got to have a community that's engaged and committed and wants to make it happen because certainly, say, at Yakandanda, totally renewable Yakandanda has been the driving force in that community to see the mini-grid project up and running and they've got the support of the local shire, Indigo Shire, as part of that. But we must see strong levels of engagement from local communities. So communities that are willing to get involved to make their households available, to potentially pledge a an interest in terms of a financial contribution. That's been very important too in getting community-owned energy projects off the ground. Uh, there's no doubt you've got to have that enthusiasm and drive at a local community level. And then you've got to get your governance in place. So you've got a well-run group that's got good, capable people running it and driving it. And that's, a, that's actually a reason why the state set up its Community Power Hubs initiative as well, which is being trialled in Bendigo, Ballarat and in the Latrobe Valley, because that's a information and technical and financial advisory service capability to help gear up community groups to get the governance and the expertise they need to uh, help their projects happen. And, and what's the role there, Simon, in terms of, you know, you mentioned obviously we need to you know, get some funding in place. What's the role of legislators in all this and the facilitation of these stakeholders? What role does the, the government play in a legislative sense here? Well, the government's got a role to play, I think, at a number of levels. So first of all, there's the funding aspect. Uh, state can The state government can really assist communities with that seed capital funding or with that funding for business case development that's really important to get the technical and other expertise. There's the community power hubs capability. As I mentioned, the state is directly funding those through Sustainability Victoria, and that's designed to provide a, a one-stop shop referral and advisory service for community-based uh, renewables and, and other group, uh, sustainability groups who are interested in this space but not quite sure where to go. But the state also has a very important role to play on the regulatory side. So obviously the state here in Victoria through the Essential Services Commission has a strong regulatory role around retail services, around protections for consumers and they have a role to play in terms of looking at how the regulatory environment can best support community-based energy solutions. And that is an emerging area. There are complexities around that. There are regulatory challenges what around that. What are those that. complexities, Simon? Let's, let's go through those. Sure. So I think what we're seeing at a regulatory level is that... And, the, and use Yak and Dander as the framework for it. I mean, yeah. what, what are they facing there specifically? Yeah. So with most community energy projects, of course, you can get support for, say, a community-owned solar farm through capital grants and commitments from the private sector and community. You can get support at a financial level for solar with storage, for example. But you need to be able to trade that. You need to be able to trade that electricity either between households, and there are barriers to do that at the moment because you need a retailer sitting in the middle of that equation. So you can't, as a householder, you can't just go and directly sell electricity to your neighbour. You need to sell it to a retailer who then sells that electricity to, to your neighbour. And at the moment, the retail models are not well developed to enable sort of small micro trading environments like in Yakandanda. And what's the innovation we're seeing in Yakandanda as a result of the support funding from the state government is an investigation into a community-owned retailer where Osgrid Services, who's the electricity distribution company in that part of the state, are working with Totally Renewable Yakandanda and Indigo Shire to potentially set up 
a community-owned retailer, and that would provide all the protections that consumers need under the national electricity law, but it would also enable them to basically have ownership of the retailer and sell and buy from that community-owned retailer. And I think the great parallel that makes Yakindanda so good is that they already have this for another form of energy supply, which is petrol. So the petrol station in Yakindanda was closing down about 15, 20 years ago. It was the only petrol station in Yakindanda. Locals would have had to travel uh, to another town to get their fuel. And so the community stepped in and they bought the petrol station. And it's now a community-owned petrol station, has been for about 15 years. It employs local people and the local community supports it in return. And I guess that's a great parallel for where we need to go with energy as well. So you've got a petrol retailer that's now community-owned because of a, a market failure. And increasingly, we're starting to see community owned uh, retailer options starting to come onto the table for electricity uh, because again there's been market failure people want to support local jobs they want to have ownership of and get a return from the activity and they want to make sure that they continue to have control and a community-owned retailer model is now on the table as a result of the work that's been funded through the new energy jobs fund right so how does that then fit in with the power of choice legislation that's uh how does that fit the community retail model, given that you know a lot of these projects are really dependent on a lar- at least a large section of the community participating? So if they're being relied upon, I guess, to be either a customer or, or, a, or a supplier, and then they're exercising their rights in, in the power of choice legislation, how does that then fit in? So the power of choice uh, legislation and the reforms that were implemented by all state governments and the federal government around the protections and opportunities for consumers in the national electricity market was focused on lowest cost solutions for consumers. So it was about making sure that consumers could access choices uh, that were lowest cost, help reduce their bills and provide for competition in the market. So whether that's demand side management options like reducing your electricity use and being paid for that, whether it was storage, so mechanisms to incentivise storage, mechanisms to incentivise solar on rooftops. So instead of consumers just paying more and more for the big heavy cost transmission and large scale generation, there were meant to be options that encouraged consumers to adopt these other solutions and and be appropriately rewarded for that in terms of price or in terms of payments to them. So power of choice was a, was philosophically about that. And when you look at a solution, again, like coming back to the Yakindanda solution that we've seen with the mini grid, that's all about solar on people's rooftops, on about 100 rooftops in Yakindanda. It's about battery storage in those households. It's about smart management systems for those that solar and storage solution and allowing those people to basically sell electricity to each other or meet demand for each other within that community rather than relying on a big retailer to provide those services and therefore reducing people's electricity bills. And that's fundamentally what Power of Choice was all about. And given that, that you would think that the majority of the people in in the community, given those advantages, would stick with the community retailer for that reason because they're offering those benefits? Yes. So it's early days, I have to say, Anthony. I mean, there's only a small number of households, only 100 or so households out of the 1,000 in Yakindanda, and Yakindanda is a small town. But what it does highlight is the potential that's there. Now, there has been a strong commitment from uh, the existing distribution business, Osgrid Services, to to help support 
uh, Totally Renewable, Yakandanda and their partners at Indigo Shire. But what that is highlighting is that distribution businesses, the big electricity distribution companies, recognise that they need to be in this space. They need to be helping facilitate community-owned solutions because that's actually good for their business as well. So it's a win-win. It's a win for the distribution business. It's a win for the local community. It provides for community ownership um, and it provides for trading between households in a way that hasn't previously been possible before. So it is still early days, but it's that sort of innovation that's really important in this space if we're going to realise the benefits of distributed generation and break down some of the existing models around the role of retailers, I beg your pardon, in the electricity market. We're in the studio today talking to Simon Corbell, who's a Victorian government renewable energy advocate. Uh, We're talking about microgrids and the potential of community retailing models uh, in Australia. Simon, you highlighted a problem, you know, an issue there about a a sort of a utopian solution, if you like, of being able to trade. Um, I really want to dig into some of the sort of peer-to-peer stuff that that seems everyone's excited about at the moment. There's lots of little startups sort of in this space. The issue, and I'll just outline it for consumers here, that's been slowing down this uh, utopian vision you're outlining here, is that consumers at the moment with you know things like Osnet and, and, and all of these uh, distribution companies, if they trade with their neighbour, they still effectively pay sort of 15 cents to use the grid to trade with their neighbour, uh, and they still pay 15 cents if they get energy from the Latrobe Valley. There is no framework at the moment that encourages some sort of either sort of wheeling charge or local discount for trading energy. If we really want to encourage these things and we want to get totally renewable yak and dander up and make these models viable, how do we fix this problem at a regulatory level? Well, we need to have a look at the obligations that are placed on retailers and distribution businesses in terms of their licensing. So the licensing framework at the moment puts certain obligations on retailers and distribution businesses in terms of how they recover their revenues. And we need to really have a look at how that's structured. And Uh, From my perspective, we need to recognise that there are benefits to the community as a whole from maintaining a strong and reliable electricity network. We do need networks to be able to trade with each other. We can't just be standalone. We do need networks that are able to trade with each other and we all need to be able to be contributing to the cost of those in a fair way. There are public goods from, there is a public good from having a strong connected electricity network. But at the same time, it can't be a mechanism that sees gouging on the part of consumers with high fixed charges. So there do need to Which be... Which we have to acknowledge has historically happened. It I mean, has th- happened. Th- that's, let's yes. not, you know, gild the lily there. Yeah, this has right. been a problem historically. That's right. So where's the happy medium in that? I think there needs to be some good work on the part of some clever economists around different ways of putting in place fairer charges that reflect the benefits that we all get from an electricity grid, but without very high standing charges that that act as a disincentive. And I think perhaps in some ways we need to look at how we can trade off the savings or the benefits that we get from households against those standing charges. So benefits that households get and contribute to the grid through in terms of their own generation and what they're supplying to the grid, and having that traded off against a standing charge is a sort of conversation that I think we need to be having. 
And, and where could those lines possibly be? Because we, we've had people on the show before and we've talked about the fact that there's the substation, there's the, what, what's the level below that? I think we, I don't know, but we end up at the node. I think we end up down at <laughs> yeah, the node. Yeah, well, one of those. Yeah. But there's a drops in voltage and, and yeah. all the way down. But if, if you're in a community sort of situation, if they can keep a lot of the generation and consumption going on within their four walls, if you like, yeah. then by definition, at least techn- on a technical basis, they're not actually putting a lot of stress on the grid outside. Mm. So is there some sort of theoretical, I guess, moral case to be made to say we should be charged from the network for the actual effect we have on it? And if we can minimise our effect on it because we're doing local generation and storage, we should get a benefit for that. And that's how we should be charged. And any trading within our, our network should should be minimised wherever possible. So I think where we where we need to think about that is at the moment we all pay costs for the we all contribute towards the cost of a network looking at how much investment there's had to be in that network what that relates to in a dollar figure and then how that's shared across the consumer base mm-hmm. now if there was a mechanism that had regard to the uh, actions on the part of a community to uh, reduce or delay the need for network augmentation or, or upgrade then that should be reflected in the standing charge uh cost that has passed through to consumers. Now, how effectively that is done within regions is very difficult to measure. At the moment, that's that's sort of judged at a whole of state level. So you look at the whole mm. network across the state, how do you avoid uh, network impacts, and then how do you reduce uh, the cost passed through to consumers as a result. But it's not done at a regional level or at a township level. And I think if we if you're going to have that conversation, it's an interesting point. You need to be thinking about whether you make assessments of the performance of the grid at a at a regional or almost at a sub-regional level. And that's, I think, a very complex task that the economists haven't got their head around yet. No. But clearly, um, it's something that needs to be thought about. And then I guess the other... The other challenge then, of course, yeah. is but, I mean, that, that yeah. businesses at the moment, the businesses are privatised businesses sure. and they have their established markets. And if yeah. you're going to break that down or change that, that's a fairly big regulatory It is, discussion. but you can see from the consumer point of view, it would be like if Uber came into Melbourne and said, right, okay, everyone's on a flat fee. You know, we're all on a flat fee. You want to travel around Melbourne, it's $40. Uh, And what it means is the people that want to go shorter distances won't do it. The people that have got $60 trips, they'll still do it because it's a bargain for them. Mm -hmm. And having the structure that you've got at the moment biases you away from what you're trying to achieve, which is more local distribution and cost. So, you know, how we unpick this is, is going to be difficult. And the other sort of angle I wanted to ask you about, Simon, was the issue of what we do in situations where... If you've got something like a DEX platform, you're allowing voltage stabilization, you're from a grid owner's point of view, you're simply adding value to the to the grid owner. You're helping them manage their assets. Mm. As soon as you allow peer-to-peer trading over that network, you are potentially not only reducing those revenues in terms of the, the flow of energy across the system, but you're also then, if lots of people wanted to trade at a certain time, you may actually also be adding cost in terms of managing those voltage mm. issues. Mm. So how do we unpick that problem at a local level and then at a 
state regulatory level? How, how do we unpick that? I think there are probably smarter minds than mine that have solutions <laughs> well, to no, that. Well, no, Simon, Matt. the thing is, uh, no, 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 I disagree. <laughs> I disagree. I disagree, Simon. You were one of the guys that worked out what we need to do with reverse auctions and you mm. unpicked a very difficult problem. Mm. And that's what we've got here. We've got another mm. very difficult problem. Mm. And so I disagree with that. So that's why right. we've got well, you on the show. Well, let's think laterally about yeah, it. Yeah, that's mean, what we've got to do. I mean, from my perspective, I mean, you need to redesign your markets. So you need to create markets that trade at a different scale to the NEM wide, you know, the NEM region wide markets that we have at the moment. But if we're going to, so that you have, you know, local regional communities with local regional distribution network service businesses and retail businesses that are much more focused on the efficiencies and the opportunities that happen at that scale rather than statewide. But if we're going to do that, we need to think about how we run our NEM regions as well, the you know the Victorian NEM region. And we need to think about whether or not we need to structure that at a, at a more disaggregated level. And then we need to think about the equity considerations. Uh, are poor regional communities that don't have a lot of capital to invest in community energy solutions going to be disadvantaged in that sort of model? Because at the moment, those communities get some benefit from the cross-subsidisation that occurs across a, a larger uh, region. So I think distribution energy solutions do sound fantastic, but I think there are some serious equity issues to think about. Small local communities with low, level, low levels of income, low levels of capital are still going to need support in that sort of environment if they're going to realise the benefits of distributed energy generation and storage technologies. And even in Yakandanda, those communities, those households are being subsidised by Osgrid and by the state government to get those energy solutions. So we do need... It sounds, do, like, it sounds like you're advocating a, a Gonski review for energy. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's what it sounds like. But I mean, you know, we talked about the, the Victorian grid being private, yeah. privatised. So could a, a place where that hasn't been done, where ha- they have been criticised on the other mm. end in previous years for there being inflated costs of, of network costs because mm. it's acted as like shadow taxation in those um, government-owned network mm. states, it has to have the tables shifted a bit where they now have more options available to them on what they do um, on the regulation side going forward. I think that's true. If you look at what's happening in Queensland, Queensland government, Queensland Labor government, which of course was returned uh, just the other day with quite a positive result, I must say, in terms of the uh, the support for new energy solutions compared to that being put forward by their opponents. Queensland government has been utilising its ownership of transmission and generation and distribution businesses to unlock renewable energy developments in those those parts of the state. And they're directing their transmission businesses to invest in new, for example, transmission infrastructure to unlock uh, resource-rich, solar resource-rich parts of the state that have currently been constrained in terms of development. They're using their distribution and retail business arms to provide new services, gener- uh, new uh, storage uh, technology op- services, for example, for households. So it's much easier when you've got control of those levers, without a doubt. Here in Victoria, obviously, historical decisions taken about privatisation. I think in a place like Victoria, it's about incentivising new ownership models, new retail ownership models that can play in this space and with perhaps some of less of the constraints that currently exist in terms of the retailer obligations without compromising protections to consumers. Mm. And we really need a closer look at what that looks like. The Thwaites review into electricity retailing 
uh, that the government uh, commissioned and which was released earlier this year talks a little bit about some of the downfalls in the existing retail model, but it hasn't really fully unlocked or looked didn't really look in detail at what the options were around new retailing models. And I think there is some work to be done in that space around what does a new community-owned retailer look like? Simon, we've sort of touched on this before, but historically there's been a lot of investment in grids, and, and I've got to confess an interest here. I sort of participated in the uh, the Power Ledger ICO, so I've got to yep. acknowledge that uh, interest on air, if you like. The thing I've started to do, though, is hang out with a lot of these sort of crypto nerds and the Bitcoin and, and uh, people like that. Yep. And one of the arguments they make against banks is they say, look, these governments are just out there. They're regulating profits for these companies. And certainly I would defend, you know, previous investment decisions because technologies like uh, Sunverge, Reposit, PowerLedger, all of these things didn't exist when these decisions were made. Mm. But the point is, now they do exist. And what would you say to those people to convince them that regulators are on top of this and that they've got a good handle on how this transition can occur, you know, to take to unlock these technologies? Well, I don't think the regulators are on top of it, but I think that's the very nature of disruption. The very nature of disruption is that it's not planned and it's not orderly, and it's uh, the response from the incumbent players, whether that's a regulator or whether that's a bank or a government, is always going to be necessarily uh, reactive to a degree, and that, but that is the nature of disruption. You know, it's not planned. It's not something you necessarily get in front of. It's something that you respond to and you learn from. Uh, the important thing is to have regard to what the power of these new platforms is, recognise that it's a legitimate response but in terms of innovation and technology, um, and we need to make sure that how we allow those businesses to operate in the market is done in a way that is fair and that does not disadvantage some consumers over others. So people who... Uh, to have access to information and capital should not be the ones who are the only beneficiaries of this reform. And there is a very important role for state governments, for governments at all levels, to intervene in the market in terms of regulation to protect uh, low-income and uh, information-poor consumers, but also to make sure that communities can get the resources they need to have the technology to realise the benefits of these new technologies and platforms. So my role is very much, let's go for innovation, but let's make sure that the innovation doesn't leave some people behind. We've only got a few minutes left, Simon, but I'd be very interested to get your opinion. You know, you're looking at these community retail models and how they might work. What are the things that are likely to need to happen um, from a sort of regulatory compliance point of view? What sort of exemptions could you make that might exempt niche community retailers who may not have the scale of incumbents to do all of the reporting and the various bits and pieces that the big guys do? How can you kind of level the playing field to make this model, you know, give it a better chance of succeeding? So there is a power uh, available under the Essential Services Commission legislation where exemptions can be made to the existing uh, licensing obligation on the part of existing retailers. Now, no such exemption has ever been given for a new retailer, you know, a new community-owned retailer to enter the market. But but the state could recommend to uh, the governor and council, which is the way it works, to 
uh, exempt uh, a certain model of retailing from some of the obligations around reporting and compliance sure, and so yeah, on. Because it um, could be just a and death that, wish for And them, that would yeah. reduce governance obligations without reducing consumer protections. Another opportunity, I think, which hasn't been thought about, but it's really the wheel going full circle, is to think about the role of water corporations. Now, water corporations have all of the billing all of the consumer uh, protection arrangements, the databases, the customer services centers to sell water. They're publicly owned, but they could get back into the power business. And okay. they could be uh, a power retailer as much as they are a water retailer, just selling a different service. And indeed, there's some very good synergies between water and electricity. Water corporations are big users of electricity. Not though. not physically, obviously. <laughs> water uh, and electricity shouldn't go together. Oh, like, no, you know, well, but they use a lot of don't, Yeah, don't drop a toaster in a bath. Oh, no, like absolutely that. not. Absolutely not. But the point, I'm making, <laughs> yeah. the point I'm making is they use a lot of electricity to pump water, to yeah. treat water, yep. and to treat wastewater and so on. And... Uh, they can partner with community-based organisations. You know, so, so, for example, they can reduce their own electricity costs by investing in renewables and other, other smart technologies, uh, but they can also partner with communities to share in the development of community-owned renewable energy generation, and they are ideally placed to provide the consumers, the retailer services as well. Uh, they're publicly owned. They're accountable to the local communities. They have locally appointed boards that are embedded in their communities. And they have all that governance and capacity to deliver retail services. So I think there's a very interesting space for water corporations to be thinking about how they partner with local communities, share in the development of locally community-owned renewable energy generation projects, storage projects, and provide a community-owned retailing model in, or at least a publicly owned retailing model that currently doesn't exist in the Victorian market. Great. That's a great way to leave it. We're unfortunately out of time. So thanks for joining us today, Simon. Thank you very much. We've been speaking to Simon Corbell from the Victorian government. He's the renewable energy advocate there. So thanks for joining us today. Matt, another interview over? Yes. Where do you think this year's been, mate? What, 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 have, we, what have we achieved this year? What have we achieved this year? Well, I think all of the technology people have done all the work. We've just been reporting on it. Now, I think it's been a good year. Costs are keeping coming down for solar, continuing uh, downwards for batteries. And, you know, these innovative technology companies that we've had on the show, you know, when we had them on two and three years ago, people said this will never work. But here we are. And they're really starting to get some traction now, which... Um, which brings joy to my heart. Yeah, the headline is that the costs of these things are going down, but then what that does in terms of changing the markets and changing the way people think about energy uh, is, is the most exciting yeah, thing for Just me. puts a Bunsen burner under the adoption rate. Absolutely. <laughs> so thanks for listening to the Beyond Zero show, recording the studios of 3CR Melbourne. If you want to listen to any of our other shows, go to bze.org.au slash media slash radio, and you can find them there. I'm Anthony Daniel. I'm Matt Grantham. We'll see you next time. Beyond Zero Emissions is an internationally recognised climate solutions think tank that is focused on solutions, not problems. Become part of the solution by becoming a monthly base load supporter. Go to www.bze.org.au to find out more. bze.org.au You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.